As we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 1-16, Satan uses false teachers and their teaching to lure many away from the truth of Scripture. In that text, Paul warned believers to beware of deceitful spirits. Deceitful spirits are false teachers, and false teachers are hypocrites and liars whose consciences have been cauterized by Satan. Paul also warned believers to beware of the doctrines of demons. The doctrines of demons are the false teachings. And these false teachings deal with externals, not with the heart. False teaching deals with the ideas of men, not the principles of God's word. False teaching promotes rules that appear to lead to godliness, but only feed one's pride and self-indulgence. And finally, Paul urged believers to be wise in Scripture. Believers must be nourished on the words of faith and on sound doctrine. Believers must discipline themselves for godliness. Believers must persevere in the teaching and preaching of Scripture. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18 states, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Here in Romans, Paul warns the church, warns believers that we must watch carefully for false teachers and avoid them. He describes them as those who cause division, divisive discord, and those who promote sinful behaviors that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture. As well, he states that they are slaves to their own desires, and they love to use eloquence and insincere praise to deceive their hearers. And so in order to watch and avoid false teachers, in order to watch and avoid their false teaching, we need to know how to identify them. And so we're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 to to see how to identify false teachers. Identifying false teachers. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, Paul returns once again to the theme of false teachers and provides believers, provides us with characteristics of false teachers so that we can identify them and protect ourselves from them. We're going to begin in verse 3, and verse 3 introduces us to our first characteristic. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. The first characteristic of a false teacher is that false teachers promote false doctrine. False teachers promote false doctrine. Now let's say some things here about false doctrine. False doctrine promotes rebellion. False doctrine promotes rebellion. Note the phrase there, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words. That phrase, advocates a different doctrine, means to teach something contrary to what is orthodox, to go against that which is sound or orthodox. The phrase, does not agree with sound words, refers to someone who refuses to be in agreement with or to seek association with correct biblical teaching. They are willingly 
rebelling against the authority of God's word. They are willingly choosing to teach contrary to biblical orthodoxy. They are willingly refusing to be in agreement with correct biblical teaching. And this is because they have a rebellious spirit. You know, previously, back in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Paul had instructed Timothy to command these false teachers to stop teaching. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The fact that they continued to teach strange doctrines after being told not to shows, demonstrates their rebellious nature. You know, our God is a God of order and authority. Consider the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, submits to the Son and to the Father. The Son, the second member of the Godhead, submits to the Father. There is no rebellion against the order and authority within the Godhead. Then there's Satan. Satan's a created being, and Satan is the king of rebellion. Now, he was not created to rebel, but he chose to rebel. And this king of rebellion, Satan, rebelled against God. He led a third of the angels of heaven to rebel against God. When God created humanity, he stitched submission to authority into the fabric of society. And yet, when Satan came along, he weaved the idea of rebellion into the heart of humanity. He tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And when Saul rebelled against God, what did Samuel say? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In essence, rebellion is demonic. It's just like lying. The devil is the father of lies. The devil is the father of rebellion. Yes, the spirit of America is built on rebellion. We praise the rebellious spirit of our forefathers and our heroes. We teach our children about the rebellious heroes of the past. And when our children grow up and begin to rebel, we're in shock and dismay. Ladies and gentlemen, any teaching that promotes rebellion against authority is against God and His Word. False doctrine promotes rebellion. False doctrine promotes incorrect theology. False doctrine promotes an incorrect theology. It's not simply sound words that they disagree with, but they disagree with the sound teachings of Jesus Christ. The sound teaching of Jesus Christ is the body of doctrine that he taught. In Luke 10, 16, Jesus said, The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Matthew 4, 4 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And every word that comes from the mouth of God, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16, is Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. And so when we reject the doctrine of Scripture we would then be rejecting the very words of Christ, hence the very words of God. And that's exactly what false doctrine does. It promotes an incorrect theology. 
When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted them by perverting God's word. First, Satan added to God's word. He said, did God say you cannot eat from the tree in the garden? Then Satan took away from God's word by removing the judgment. You will not surely die. Hence the command of Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. False teachers do the same thing as their father the devil. In response to growing social problems such as poverty, inequality, racism, war, false teachers have created what is called the social gospel. Now make no mistake, these social issues do require a response. But one's theological bent determines whether or not these issues are being addressed biblically. An individual looking to respond to these issues from a worldview that rejects the Bible as the inspired and infallible Word of God will no doubt embrace humanistic ideals in seeking to answer and alleviate social ills. You need to understand that the social gospel proponents deny the doctrine of original sin. The social gospel presents sin as the result of the social structure, not human nature. This redefining in sin results in a message that people can live sinless lives once they're freed from the social structures that drove them to sin. Social gospel proponents deny the premillennial return of Jesus. Instead, they believe that the second coming of Christ will not happen until the church transforms society. And yes, the church has been called to engage culture. We have been called to engage society as salt and light. But we need to understand that only Christ and the gospel can transform culture. Social gospel proponents deny the necessity of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel results in individuals repenting of their sin, placing their faith in the work of Christ, and submitting to Jesus as Lord. But the social gospel purports that redemption is only achieved collectively through social and political activism. Let's be clear, when Jesus came, he came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. Now yes, Jesus ministered to the physical needs of people. But he always did that in conjunction with ministering to their spiritual needs. Never once in the New Testament, in the Gospels or in the Epistles, did Christ or his followers call for political change or social reforms. And I'm not saying that political change isn't necessary. I'm not saying that social reform isn't necessary. But our responsibility, first and foremost as Christians, is to seek and to save the lost. See, they preached repentance for forgiveness of sins. And the gospel of Christ changed the hearts of individuals and transformed their lives. No doubt, when the true gospel is preached by the believer, changed hearts and transformed lives will impact the society and the culture in which one lives. Acts 17, verse 6 says, When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of his brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. 
That's what should be being said of the church. That's what should be being said of true born-again believers. That because we're out there spreading the gospel, because we're out there seeking to save the lost, that we're out there following the example of Jesus, that we're turning the world upside down. Third thing about false doctrine, not only does it promote rebellion and promote an incorrect theology, but it opposes godliness. It opposes godliness. Again, if anyone advocates a different doctrine or does not agree with the sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is conforming one's character to God. The scripture is clear in both 1 Peter and Leviticus, be holy as God is holy. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he gives us his instructions. That's why he gives us his law. So that we can conform our character to his. But today there's an opposition to godliness. Today we promote and we celebrate license to sin. There's a theological term for this called antinomianism. Comes from two words, anti or against or without, and the Greek word nomos meaning law, against or without law, i.e. lawlessness. And listen to the words of 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices what? Lawlessness, anomia. And sin is lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 tells us that this spirit of lawlessness or antinomianism is the spirit of lawlessness that reigns in the children of disobedience. And the epitome of the spirit of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 8 is the Antichrist. And the goal of antinomianism is to undermine and repeal God's standard, God's law. By teaching that we're free, that Christians are free from the obligation of God's word, Antinomianism takes the biblical teaching that God's law does not save to an unbiblical conclusion. Certainly God's law does not save. God's law never intended to save anyone. God's law intended, one, to point people to the Savior, and two, once people have found the Savior, it teaches them how to be like Him, how to be righteous, be holy, as God is holy. Well, what does holiness look like? Well, he's given us his Bible, his word to show us that. By removing the law of God, antinomianism results in a sacred anarchy that the postmodernist has been seeking for. And such anarchy rears its head in the idea that a Christian can live a life of sin and still be forgiven. R.C. Sproul said, The song of the antinomian is free from the law, O blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. Now, he wasn't supporting that. He was mocking that. He was mocking the idea of antinomianism. That's the philosophy out there today, that uh, as a Christian, I'm free from God's law, and I can sin all I want, and I can still have remission or forgiveness. And so what has happened now is antinomianism has produced an entire generation of quote-unquote professing Christians who are still dead in sin. That's right, dead in sin. 
Sinclair Ferguson stated, the wholesale removal of the law seems to provide a refuge for the antinomian, but the problem is not the law. The problem is that the heart remains unchanged. So false teachers promote false doctrine. That's characteristic one. If we're going to identify false teachers, look at what they're teaching. Are they promoting rebellion? Are they promoting an incorrect theology? Are they opposing godliness? They're a false teacher. Secondly, verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, false teachers are full of themselves. He is conceited and understands nothing. The term conceited here means to puff up like a cloud of smoke. In other words, this person is full of hot air. They're blowing smoke at you. It describes a person who has an excessively favorable opinion of his own importance. And Paul confronted this conceit. He explains they, they, they're so full of themselves, but in reality, they understand nothing. We'll put it this way. They are conceited ignoramuses. Now see, false teacher will come along and they'll boast about their wealth, they'll boast about their experience, they'll boast about their new revelation, they'll boast about all kinds of things. And Barclay adds an excellent comment about the false teacher's pride. He says this, his first characteristic is conceit. His first aim is self-display. His desire is not to display Christ, but to display himself. There are still preachers and teachers who are more concerned to gain a following for themselves than for Jesus Christ. They're more concerned to press their own views upon people than they are to bring men the word of God. So when you're dealing with someone and you think you might have a false teacher, ask yourselves, are they building up Christ or are they building up themselves? Are they trying to build a following for themselves or for Christ? Are they more concerned about their own views than bringing the word of God to people? Now the opposite of conceit or the opposite of pride is humility. And to be clear, humility is not thinking less of oneself. Humility is thinking less about oneself. It's thinking more about God than yourself. It's thinking more about others than yourself. You know, I, I hear so much about, you know, what I'm going to do, and I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I have to stop saying, well, wait a minute. Have you considered others? Have, have you considered what does that appear to others? How does that affect others? You know, we're so interested, we're so self-absorbed that all we're worried about is me. My wants, my needs, my desires, and we, we need to step back and consider what's best for others, okay? What's best for God? You know, the Bible tells us that God provides grace to those who humble themselves, but he opposes the proud, James 4, 6. By the way, if you turn to James 4, 6, you'll notice uh, that it says, he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, quote, 
God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. James is quoting Proverbs 6.17. Furthermore, service for Christ is to be performed in humility. Acts 20, verse 19, serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 tells us to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Isn't that interesting? It, vain or empty conceit. In other words, you can be so puffed up about yourself, but you are nothing. So we're supposed to serve with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Don't simply look out for your own personal interests. We're to look on the interest of others. You know, pride should have no place amongst the people of God. But unfortunately and sadly, there is a lack of humility. And there is such a desire for self-aggrandizement amongst those who are, quote-unquote, serving Christ. When someone serves for the purpose of drawing attention to themselves, they are not serving Christ, they're serving themselves. False teachers are full of themselves. False teachers promote false doctrine. Now let's look at our third characteristic here, and that's in verses 4 and 5. False teachers are consumed with conspiracy theories. False teachers are consumed with conspiracy theories. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Their interest in these controversial topics and these disputes over semantics is morbid, sick, unhealthy. See, the reality is they're so consumed with quote-unquote conspiracy theories, what-ifs, the would-haves, could-haves, the mites, the mays, they're so consumed that their teaching has become unhealthy. They're unhealthy. They're sick, he said. They're morbid. Instead of advancing the work of God, they're promoting their conspiracies, their controversies, their useless speculations. MacArthur says that false teachers do little more than quibble over terminology. They indulge in pseudo-intellectual theorizing rather than in productive study and submission to God's Word. What does the Bible say? Sadly, most people don't have a clue what the Bible says, but they've got an opinion of what the Bible says. And we see this more and more, unfortunately, in our day. Pulpits are filled with pseudo-intellectual theorizing. Social media is filled with pseudo-intellectual theorizing. Everybody's got an opinion. You know, how about dropping some truth? How about showing what the Bible says? Well, the problem is the vast majority of quote-unquote teachers and preachers don't know how to have a productive study 
in God's Word, nor how to submit to God's Word. Kent Hughes describes his ministry to those promoting error. He said, I have spent endless hours with such people who cannot and will not grasp the plain meaning of a sentence or a paragraph in its context, but rather fix on a word or a soundbite and give it a definition that defies lexicons, history, and logic. Nothing dissuades them. Nothing informs them. They understand nothing. And here's the sad part, Kent says, and they enjoy it. See, my friends, when the truth and application of God's word is replaced with meaningless, false drivel, believers lose their moral foundation. And the result of a loss of a moral foundation is that incredible evil results. If you're embroiled in arguments over meaningless theories, if you're embroiled in arguments over false doctrine, first thing that begins to happen is your relationship is going to deteriorate. See, notice, let me read the text again. What, notice what happens. Out of these things, out of these conspiracy theories, these controversial questions and nonsense, look what happens. Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Now right there it tells you their, 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 their minds are depraved and they're deprived of the truth. They don't have the truth. But look at what happens. Look at the result. False teachers are prone to envy. Okay? You find, you find somebody who is resenting another person's success or gifts, the warning bell ought to go off. Okay? Lights should begin to flash. Envy. Okay? False teachers are prone to envy. They hate when others succeed. You know, I'll give you the example of Paul. There were people out there riding Paul's coattails. And... Uh, even so far, and this is when he was in prison, and it's in the book of Philippians, but uh, they were still preaching the gospel, but they were also slamming Paul. So they weren't necessarily false teachers, but they were definitely heading in that direction because there was envy. And, you know, I love Paul's response. He says, you know what, I really don't care as long as they're preaching the gospel. That, that's my major concern is that the gospel's being preached. You know, they can slam me all day long. It's not true, and it won't hold up. I'm blameless. But these individuals resented Paul's success. You know, false teachers are prone to strife. That's a spirit of competition and contention. You know, we're going to be better. We're the best church in such and such a location. Wait a minute. Need to be careful. Need to beware. That's a spirit of competition. There shouldn't be competition amongst the true church of God. We ought to be saying, hey, listen, you know, I may be the church here and you may be the church there and God may gift you this way and God may gift us in this and you may have your ministries and we have our ministries. How can we work together in the cause of Christ? 
Now understand, we're not going to set aside orthodoxy to work together. We're not talking about that. We're talking about two churches that doctrinally are on the same page, but have differences in approach and way they do things, and that's okay. You know, false teachers are prone to abusive language. That's slander. You know, they're, they're, they're so quick to slander others. False teachers are prone to evil suspicions. They constantly think wrong of other people. They think people always have bad or wrong intentions. That's a sign you may be dealing with a false teacher. And they're prone to constant bickering or friction. Now you need to ask yourself, are you a false teacher or have you been taken in by some kind of false teaching? You say, well, how would I know? Well, look at these things here. Do you resent other people's success? Are you jealous of the gifts other people have? If you do, you need to examine yourself because you might be under the sway of false teaching. Are you prone to strife? Are you constantly, is there, some, is there a constant contention or competition? You know, are you, are you constantly trying to make yourself better than everybody else? You might be under the guise of false teaching. Slander. You know, do you constantly have to find yourself slandering other people to make yourself look good? You might be under the guise of false teaching. Evil suspicions. You know, do you constantly think everybody's got it out for you, that everybody's got some kind of wrong intention? You know, if you're suspicious of everybody, you might be under the guise of false teaching. And then are you prone to constant friction? Are you prone to bickering? Are you prone to constantly having to pick, pick, pick? You might be a false teacher or you might be under the sway of false teaching. You know, it says that these people are deprived of the truth. The word there, pride, means they've been robbed of the truth. Someone, it's a passive uh, participle here, means that someone pulled them away from the truth. People once knew the truth. They may have even been raised in the church. Some of these may have even pastored the church. But they fell into false teaching and were led away from the truth. And so we need to examine their ministries and their relationships. And if their relationships or their ministry is marked by discord, by envy, by strife, by slander, by evil suspicions, then you might be dealing with a false teacher or at the least someone under the sway of false teaching. And friends, these behaviors, according to Galatians 5, 19 to 20, are not fruits of the Spirit. They're fruits of the sinful nature. Envy, strife, jealousy, contention, evil suspicions, abusive language or slander should not be part of our nature. So, three things we've seen so far in identifying false teachers. Number one, they promote false doctrine. We said false doctrine promotes rebellion, incorrect theology, and opposes godliness. Secondly, the second characteristic of, in identifying a false teacher is they are full of themselves. They're conceited and they know nothing. 
The third characteristic is they're consumed with conspiracy theories. And now, fourthly, our fourth characteristic of a false teacher is that they are motivated by money. They're motivated by money. Look at verse 5, 1 Timothy 6, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, these false teachers are preoccupied with financial profit. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In other words, these cats are out there promoting themselves with the primary goal of making money. You see, a heretic, a false teacher, will view religion as a means of making a quick dollar. In character, they're greedy and materialistic. And Paul's strong words here describe false teachers who exploit the church for their own end. They don't care about the havoc they create. They just see people as a dollar bill. They just see people for what they can get out of them, not what they can give to them from the Word of God. Paul had no objection to giving money to those who serve in the preaching ministry, to the religious leader. But he opposed the goal of materialism that was the primary objective of the false teacher. You know, we've got these, this, this word of faith teaching, this health and wealth gospel that tells people it's God's will for you to be financially successful. They quote verse after verse to back up their teaching and flaunt their own wealth as proof positive. My friends, the prosperity gospel is the belief, that's this, what we call the health and wealth gospel or the word of faith teaching, the prosperity gospel. It is the belief that God rewards those who have sufficient faith with material prosperity and physical health. And I got news for you, that can't be further from the truth. God didn't promise physical health because you believe the gospel. Hey, read the scriptures, folks. Some of the godliest people in scripture were some of the most afflicted people in scripture. Now, that's not always the case, but we can't make a statement that if you've got sufficient faith, God's going to bless you with material prosperity and physical health. Listen, Job had all kinds of faith. And all his prosperity and all his health was quickly taken away. You know, if a believer repeats positive professions and you've got enough faith, these heretics, these false teachers will tell you that you will release blessing on your life. Now, the prosperity gospel is marked by the likes of Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and Cruffalo Dollar. By the way, I'd like to see a one of these cats open up their bank account and bless somebody else. And instead, they're limo riding and fleer jet flying. That's what they are. They're living behind their walled homes. They can sit there and spew everything out they want day after day and never once have to get down into the trenches. Never once go out into the highways and byways to minister to the people that need them most. And it is their audacious promotion of health, wealth, and happiness 
that makes the Pentecostal movement the fastest growing religious movement in the world. See, the prosperity gospel is the power of positive thinking. My friends, the true gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16. The prosperity gospel is not the true gospel. It's another gospel. And we know what happens to those who preach another gospel. See, it omits sin. The prosperity gospel does not preach sin. It doesn't preach hell. It doesn't preach repentance. It doesn't preach Christ. It doesn't preach the cross. It replaces the truth with emotion and desire for health, wealth, and happiness. Don't you want to be healthy? Oh, come to Jesus. Don't you want to be wealthy? Come to Jesus. Don't you want to be happy? Come to Jesus. My friends, Jesus did call his disciples, but he never called them to health, wealth, or happiness. Instead, he called them to carry the cross, deny themselves, and follow him daily. Luke 9.23 See, the prosperity gospel doesn't save anyone, but sends plenty to hell. And those who want to preach this heretical nonsense are going to find themselves doomed to the lake of fire, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If you preach another gospel, you are accursed. Accursed. You're distorting the gospel of Christ. Friends, we need to beware. Because false teachers are masquerading as that which is good and respectable. They claim to spread love. They claim that they want to eliminate prejudice. They claim that they want to crusade for peace. They want to clean up the environment. But my friends, beware. All that glitters is not gold. Now listen, those things, spread love, eliminate prejudice, crusade for peace, clean up the environment, all good things. But beware, all that glitters isn't gold. Because if you're trying to attempt these things without God, who is righteous, without His righteous Word, and without the Savior, who is the standard of what is righteous, you are not going to get anywhere. You are not going to accomplish anything. Today, we have produced an entire generation of people who have no tie to biblical orthodoxy. The mainline denominations gave themselves over to liberalism almost a century ago. Religious movements are spiritually bankrupt, and yet they keep on cropping up, drawing professing believers into their folds. Institutions that were once bastions of orthodoxy have become breeding grounds for secular philosophy. Even Christian broadcasting and media companies are producing worshiptainment led by spiritual charlatans rather than preaching and teaching sound truth. Now, I know some of you may be listening and saying, well, what about the good these individuals accomplish? What about the good these institutions accomplish? Maybe you're asking me, is not some good better than no good? Maybe you're sitting there listening and you're saying, well, are not good causes just that, good causes? And I want to tell you, the answer is no. Capital N, capital O, no. God's work's got to be done God's way. If you're doing good in a manner that displeases God, that is not good at all. Obedience to God is not dependent on the result or the consequence. Good results do not necessarily mean that something is in God's will. Look at Numbers chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but Numbers chapter 20. Moses smote the rock and got water. You say, hey, that's great. People of Israel were dying of thirst. Now they've got water. But God told Noah, Moses, not Noah, Moses, speak to the rock. 
Now Moses got the water, which was good for the people, but not the way God commanded. And as a result, Moses was barred from entering the promised land. Numbers 20, verse 12. Mm. All that he did, he got banned because he didn't speak to the rock. He, he, he smote the rock. I also want to warn you to beware of the good cause syndrome. Beware of the good cause syndrome. In 2 Chronicles 18, again, you don't have to turn there. You can look at that later. But 2 Chronicles 18, we have the godly king Jehoshaphat who is trapped into compromising with the godless king Ahab. Now, Ahab come along, and, and you all know how bad Ahab was. Well, he comes along and convinces Jehoshaphat to join him in securing Israel against the Syrians. And he ignored, Jehoshaphat ignored the warning of the holy prophets. And he joined in with Ahab for what he thought was a good cause. Now I want to read you 2 Chronicles 19 verse 2. Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? See that's what happened. He compromised. He got involved in the, with good cause syndrome. He jumped in. He lined himself with the wrong people. And as a result, he brought God's wrath down on himself. Oh, my friends, this is why we need to be so careful of those deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It's why we've got to constantly be checking and identifying the false teacher and or the false teaching because it's so easy to get caught up in good causes, and the cause, though it may seem good, if it's involving false teachers or false teaching, we can't compromise ourselves, lest God's wrath come upon us. Now, friends, you and I, we cannot remain silent. We say, Pastor, what are we going to do? Well, first, we're going to go back over this message we're going to identify false teachers by their characteristics. Are they promoting false doctrine? Listen, if they're teaching rebellion, if they're teaching incorrect theology, if they're teaching or opposing godliness, you're dealing with a false teacher. We'll say, well, how do I know if the teaching's false? Well, that's one of the reasons why we've started up the page Two-Minute Theology. Okay? Obviously, we can't cover every theological issue, but we're going to be adding several times throughout the week little two-minute segments on different theological issues, and we're starting with basic theology so that you can go on and listen to that, and you can go back and look at those. They'll all stay there on the site, and they'll all be searchable so that, you know, when you come up against something, you're saying, well, I don't know if this lines up. Hey, let me go here. Oh, here's orthodoxy. Okay, this is, this is wrong. Secondly, are they full of themselves? Okay, if they're full of themselves, go the other way. Are they, are, are, are they consumed with controversy or conspiracy theories and, and listen you say well I'm not sure listen all you got to do is look at their relationships and if they're creating envy and strife and con competition and contention and jealousy and slander and evil suspicions psh, run and then are they motivated by the money are they motivated by the money that's a big one right there okay if they're elevating themselves to make a buck rather than elevating Christ to his honor and glory, run. Now to that, let me add a couple things. We need to contend and strive together for the faith. And as the pastor, that's my responsibility. Whether we're gathered or scattered, 
My responsibility to you is to contend and strive for the faith. As Jude 3 tells us, we're to contend earnestly for the faith. Philippians 1.27 tells us that we need to be stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay? We need to fight, we need to wage a war against error in all its form. If it's error, if it's wrong, we've got to call it out. And sometimes it's going to step on our toes because our toes may be dabbling in the water of bad theology. The pastor, my job is also not only to contend for the faith on your behalf, but also to preach the word. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he, Paul said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ to preach the word in and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instructions. I've got to preach God's word, not just when it's convenient or comfortable. That means reproving or censoring, rebuking sinners, as well as exhorting you to think right. I know sometimes the messages aren't popular. I know sometimes you're like, oh man, here he goes again, you know, dealing with these false teachers. Well, because right now there's a lot of false teaching out there. I think there's more false teaching out there right now than there's been in years. In a day when correcting false opinion results in being labeled as intolerant and divisive, we cannot succumb to the whims of the masses and the wiles of the devil. You know, he... You need to be careful of this cancel culture. And see, here, here again, here's the problem. There's a lot of things that ought to be canceled. Okay? A lot of things out there that are bad, that need to be ended. But at the same time, it goes, the pendulum goes so far the other direction that now if you call out sin, if you call out unrighteousness, you're being canceled. Well, we're going to keep preaching whether we're canceled or not, okay? We're not going to succumb to the whims of the masses and the wiles of the devil. A failure to faithfully exposit the word of God results in weak and vulnerable sheep. And by God's grace, with every breath I've got in my body, I'm going to do everything I can, again, by His grace, to not allow you to be weak or vulnerable sheep. Because if you're weak and vulnerable, you can possibly be capable of being taken away and falling for apostasy. And we've got to, this apostasy, we've got to oppose it and expose it, folks. You know, we, we've got to show why it's wrong. We've got to show, we've got to prove, because you know what, these false teachers, they're false teaching, they want to build a following, and they want to distort the truth, they want to lead away the flock of God. Matthew 7, 5, 15 and 10, 16, Christ said, they are savage wolves. That's false teachers. They're savage wolves. They're more dangerous to the church than those outside of the church because they appear to be in the church. But listen to their words. Are their words, are their teachings twisted or distorted? Christ said their words are perverse. They twist and distort God's word. Again, that's why it's so necessary for you to know sound doctrine so that you can discern false teaching. You know, I don't have to spend a lot of time teaching about false teaching. You know, I mean, there's plenty of false teachings out there and from time to time it's necessary when one raises its head to quickly address it and point out what's wrong. But it's far better to teach what's sound and good and scriptural and biblical and doctrinal 
so that you know what the good is, so that when you see the bad, you immediately know there's something wrong with this. Now, you may not be able to put your finger right exactly on what is wrong, but you'll know something stinks. Something smells fishy. My friends, I challenge you. Hear the commands of Scripture. Watch them and avoid them. Steer clear of them. Remove yourself from them. 2 John 7, 11. I want to close with 2 John verses 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Believers, let's beware. Let's be careful of those seducing spirits. Let's be careful of those false teachings, those doctrines of demons. And again, let me give you these four areas to be on the watch out for. Number one, are they promoting false doctrine? Number two, are they full of themselves? Number three, are they consumed with conspiracy theories? And number four, are they motivated by money? If you answer those questions, any of those questions in the affirmation, watch them and avoid them. Father God, I thank you for the word that you've given us today because, Father, we, we are sheep and we're prone to wander. Sometimes, Lord, we wander where we don't belong and sometimes we even fall off cliffs because we're not focused. We're thick. We're stubborn. But I thank you, Father, as our good and great shepherd that you've given us this word that is a rod and a staff that corrects us and comforts us, that, that leads us and directs us. And Father, as your under-shepherd, Lord, I pray that you would keep me from the wicked one, that, Lord, you would keep me from falling into these things. You know, we live in a day, Father, when we see preachers that are going off the deep end, theologically. One day they're standing for what appears to be sound doctrine. The next day they're embracing false theology, false doctrine. So we pray to that end. Lord, keep me ever bound to your word and help me to continue to preach and teach to these saints these sheep that you've invested to my care. Father, I pray for the other leaders in this church or other elders that, Father, you too would keep them from the wicked one. You'd keep them from error. you continue to build them up in the most holy faith. Father, let us never get to the point of thinking we've arrived. In reality, Lord, we've only just begun. We need to pursue holiness. We need to pursue righteousness. We need to pursue godliness. Father, give us a firm foundation again so that we can protect the sheep that you have placed in our care. Father, if there's anyone here in, in, uh, amongst our people, Father, amongst those who are listening even now, whether they're part of our uh, flock or they're part of the, someone else's flock, Father, I ask and pray that you would take this word and, Father, you'd infuse it into their mind that they can be on the lookout, that they can examine who they're hearing and what they're hearing and find out whether it's from you or not. Lord, I pray that you'd watch over us. 
I pray that you'd keep us pure and that someday we look forward to that great day when you present us as blameless and undefiled before your Father in heaven. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. We pray all this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.